Uh, so if you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, it was probably about 12 years ago that Mandy and I and Davis and Faith came to Countryside. And when we came to Countryside, uh, Pastor Tom was finishing up. He was at the very end of the book of Ephesians, and he had apparently been there for years, which we thought was weird when we first got here, and now we totally understand how that works, um, about being in a book for a while. But what I did is I went back and I looked at Pastor Tom's sermon or sermons on this passage that we're going to be studying tonight. And uh, what's interesting is starting in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 in the original Greek, that's actually one sentence that is given. We're going to go through the first three verses. Pastor Tom, whenever he covered uh, this text, these 10 verses, uh, he did it in nine sermons. So, based on the fact that we're going to cover three verses tonight, I am blowing him out of the water as far as speed goes. So, y'all are going to be very grateful that we go as quickly as we do, but you're not going to get the same depth that you get from him. Um, one of the things that he had talked about whenever I went back and was looking at the sermons, uh, whenever he started out, he, he kind of was recapping the previous chapter, uh, chapter 1. And he talked about, he said, you remember that in chapter 1 we learned in verses 3 through 14 that we have received some amazing spiritual blessings. That's what we talked about in chapter 1, some amazing spiritual blessings that Paul was wanting to reiterate and talk to the Ephesians about. Um, and then he moves on and in verses 15 through 23, the second half of chapter 1, and he talks about that he prays that you would come to a full understanding and a grasp of these blessings that God had given. He wanted them to comprehend and to understand the blessings that God had poured out on them. Uh, and that happens through the work of the Holy Spirit as he illuminates, as he reveals, uh, and he illuminates our understanding of the truth of his word and what he has done. It's like he turns the light on in a dark room and it makes it clear to us, oh, I understand, I get it. Um, and in those passages, we learn that nothing is as important to our spiritual growth and development as growing in our real spiritual knowledge of what God has done for us. Um, last Sunday, uh, Justin taught, and he covered those verses. Um, and just a very quick recap, um, Paul, uh, he, had, he titled the lesson, Paul's Prayer. And it was... Paul's prayer that they would grasp these things, that they would understand these things, that they'd be grounded in these things for a purpose. Um, so the purpose of his prayer, that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened, that their eyes would be opened, the light would come on, and they would grasp and understand the truths of the blessings that God had given them in Christ. And then he goes on and he talked about the product of the prayer. And there were three points. It was the hope of his calling, the riches of his inheritance, and the greatness of his power. These were things that Jesus Christ, that God had, because of his love for us, had done for us through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that he did for you and I. Um, and then he goes on and he talked about how God provided these things for them with the strength of his might through Jesus Christ. God did these things for you. He did them for me. 
So, as we come to chapter 2, Paul is not done filling out our knowledge, growing our knowledge and our understanding. He's not done teaching us. Um, and you will see that he doesn't come, uh, the, uh, you will see that he doesn't come to his first real imperative, the first commands that he gives uh, until chapter 4. The first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul is laying the groundwork. He's laying the groundwork of what God has done before he gets to, here's how you apply it. Here's what you're going to do. Um, they're all teaching us in these first three chapters about what he has done in Christ Jesus for us. Um, and then when we get to chapter 4, you're going to finally see how to apply those imperatives. Uh, when he finally does issue commands, he builds those commands on the foundations of the teaching that he's laid in those first three chapters. Now, this is somewhat contrary to the way we like to learn. Um, the average Christian, Christian or professing Christian um, likes to say, hey, let's skip over the doctrine. Let's get to the practical application. I want to get to the practical application that I can leave here and go begin to apply. Don't teach me any more doctrine. Just tell me what I need to do. Um, I want my five steps to success. I want my three steps to good communication and relationship to my parents. I want that we, we like very practical application things because we like to go and do things. Um, tell me how to fix my marriage. Tell me how to get along with my parents. Explain to me how I can communicate better with people, um, how I can be more successful at work. Help me to learn how I can be the best version of myself that I can be. People use that term all the time. Um, but for Paul, you are not truly ready to address those practical issues unless you have begun to understand the doctrine on which they rest, the why and how God brought it about. Um, I'm going to share an analogy with you, and shocker, it's not going to be a sports analogy. So who here has ever played an instrument in your life? Raise your hand. Edwin, that's not real. Um, no, I, okay, so I am not musically inclined, but when I was in a freshman and sophomore in high school, I started taking piano. Took it for about a year and a half. So there were two parts to me playing the piano. Whenever I would go in for a lesson, I would either do theory, we would work on theory, and then we would play, okay? I did not care for or like the theory part, but I loved hitting the keys on the piano, making music, doing something. But the theory was boring. It wore me out. But in order to be a good musician, you have to get grounded in theory. So I'm told. You have to understand what are these little dots on the page? And what does this little squiggly line mean? And this other little squiggly line? And the bass and the treble and all these different things that all you musicians know all about. You have to know the, and understand how they work, what their purpose is, and the way they function so that you can be, go out and apply it. That's what Paul is doing with the Ephesians. He is laying the groundwork 
so that they understand why and how God brought about these things so that we can now go apply them and exercise these things in our lives. That's the point. So chapter 2 continues with our education about what God has done for us in Christ. And specifically in this first chapter, it explains how we as individuals came to enjoy these incredible blessings that he was talking about in chapter 1. How are we able to enjoy these blessings that God has poured out? How do we get to participate? How does that happen? How does a sinner deserving of God's wrath come to enjoy incredible blessings from his hand? How does that happen? You know, every single one of us receive God's common good. We received it today when the sun came up and when oxygen hits our lungs and God does that for everybody. He provides that. The seasons, the temperature, the distance of the moon and the sun from the earth and all these different things, he does that. That's common good that he pours out on us. Um, we all get to participate in that. But we're talking not about the common good that he does for everybody, but about the inheritance of justification and an eternity of joy with our Heavenly Father. How do we participate in that? And that's what Paul is addressing to the Ephesians so that they were grounded and they knew and they understood. Pastor Tom, when he opened the series in Ephesians chapter 2, he talked about the fact that this was one of the most impactful passages in his life that led him to salvation. So, as we walk through this, there is no question that this applies to every single person in this room. Whether you are a believer or you are not a believer. Whether you believe that this is the truth and that this is the inerrant word of God or whether you believe that this is phony and this is fake and you don't believe it and you're only here because your parents make you come. What I'm going to share tonight applies to every single one of us because it is a crossroads and it's a point of decision that every single person in this room has to make and is making whether you acknowledge that you're making it or not. So if you're taking notes tonight, the title of our lesson is A Comprehensive Understanding of Our Condition. A Comprehensive Understanding of Our Condition. We're going to read the passage first and then we'll start. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1. And it says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So point number one tonight is our state before Christ. Our state before Christ. Verse 1 says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. The first step to recovery from any addiction or problem is recognizing that you have a problem. 
before you recognize you have a problem, you're not going to take the steps and make the moves that are necessary to make a change in your life. It's not going to happen. First, salvation is from sin. The salvation that God provides is from sin, which separates, uh, which characterizes life before Christ. That's what sin is. Sin represents life before Christ. And in these three verses, there's, uh, there's perhaps no clear statement in Scripture on the sinfulness of man apart from Christ. Apart from Christ, this is the state of man apart from Christ. The wages or payment for sin is death, according to Romans 6.23. And because man is born in sin, he is born into death. That's what happens. Now, one thing that we're going to talk about tonight is we're going to talk about death. When we talk about death tonight, we tend to think about Queen Elizabeth in a casket. That's what we think of. When we think of death, we think of maybe not specifically Queen Elizabeth, but that's been on the news for the last two weeks. But we think about a person dead in a casket, their physical body. When we talk about death tonight, predominantly what we're talking about is not a physical death, but a spiritual death. That's what's being addressed. Because every one of us, our bodies are temporal. They're going to go away. But our spirits will go on, according to the truth of Scripture. And that's what Paul is addressing and what Scripture addresses of why we need to be justified before the Lord. Uh, man does not become spiritually dead because he sins. He is spiritually dead because he, by nature, he is sinful. Except for Jesus Christ, that, that is the condition of every human being since the fall, including every believer that is saved. That is our condition. It is the past condition of, of believers and the present condition of everyone else. That's the state that we're in. Man's basic trouble is not being out of harmony with his heritage or his environment, but being out of harmony with our creator, God, Jesus Christ. That's our problem. That's our challenge. His principal problem is not that he cannot make meaningful relationships with other human beings. That's not our problem. But that we have no right relationship with God. That's our problem. We can make relationships with each other, but we, on our own, cannot make a right relationship with God because our sin alienates us from Him, according to Ephesians 4.18. Our condition has nothing to do with the way that we live. It has to do with the fact that we are dead even while we are still physically alive. So when we talk about this, when we talk about death, Apart from Jesus Christ, I have a physical human body, but inside I am a dead man, according to Scripture. I am a dead man. And that's what Scripture is saying to us, and it is the state of every single person apart from Christ. I have a physical living body, but my spirit, my sin nature is dead. Because he is dead to God, he is dead to spiritual life. 
to truth, to righteousness, to inner peace, happiness, and ultimately to every good, good thing that God has planned for us in eternity. One of the first indications of a person's physical death, actual physical death of your body, uh, is the body's inability to respond to stimulus. That's how you tell if somebody is dead. No matter what it might be, a dead person cannot react. He no longer responds to light, to sound, to smell, to taste, or to anything else. He is totally insensitive. That's what a physically dead person is. That is the way of a spiritual dead person as well. They are incapable of responding. A person who is spiritually dead has no life by which he can respond to spiritual things, much less to live a spiritual life. No amount of love, care, words of affection can draw a response. Nothing. A spiritually dead person is alienated from God and therefore um, alienated from true life. We have no capacity to respond. A Scottish commentator in one of the uh, commentaries I was looking at, John Eady said, it is a case of death walking. Men apart from God are spiritual zombies. The walking dead who do not know that they are dead. They go through the motions of life, but they do not possess it. So Jesus gave a couple of illustrations about this in Scripture. After Jesus had called a certain man to himself, and we're going to go fast because we've got a lot to cover, um, so you don't have to turn there. Uh, after a, a, Jesus had called a certain man to follow him, the man asked his permission, this is in Matthew 8, 21, to bury his father. You guys might remember this. Now, this was a figure of speech meant to wait until his father had died so he could get his inheritance. That's what that meant. It indicated the spiritual, the condition of spiritual deadness that this man had um, and brings both deaths, deaths together when Jesus responded and says, follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. Now, I remember reading that when I was younger and I would read that and I'd go, what does that mean? The allow the dead to bury their own dead. We know that people that are physically dead, that are in the ground or in a tomb, do not come back to life and when somebody dies and say, hey, we're going to go now bury this guy and then go back to dead. That's not what it's talking about. It's not talking about physical death. Jesus was addressing spiritual death. And that's when he says, follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. And the way you could read that is allow the, physical, uh, the spiritually dead to bury the spiritually dead. Allow them to deal with themselves. You come and follow me. Because that's the only way you're going to be alive. That man's concern was not his father, who was not likely dead, but for the things of the physical world. That was his concern. He wanted to take care of his physical welfare first before he went and followed Christ. When Paul had counseled Timothy about the widows in the church in 1 Timothy 5, 6, he said of those who were recklessly extravagant or wasteful in the use of their resources, talking about these women, he says, she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. He was addressing a spiritual death that was in them. So, before we were saved, we were like every person who is apart from God. We were dead in trespasses and sins. 
We were not dead because we had committed sin, but because we were in sin. That's what we were. In this context that it's talking about here, it's uh, trespasses and sins do not refer simply to acts, but first of all to the sphere of existence of a person apart from God. That's what it's talking about. One of the illustrations talked about the fact that he does not become a liar when he tells a lie. He tells a lie because he is a liar. That's the nature, the true nature of man apart from Christ. He does not become a thief when he steals. He steals because he is already a thief. We were born sinners. We may not have committed every act of sin yet, but we are born sinners. That is our nature. That's who we are. And so when it says in Ephesians 2.1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, that is the state of all of us apart from Christ, no matter what we think. And so, and that same thing applies to uh, the fact that murder, adultery, covetousness, every other sin, we are sinners. The act of those things does not make us a sinner. We are sinners, and then we do those things. Jesus confirmed this when he said, the evil man out of his evil treasure brings forth what is evil in Matthew 12, 35. That's what Jesus said about us. He said in Matthew 15, verses 18 and 19, he says, the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, and slanders. All of those things come out from our hearts. We are sinners. We have a sin nature, and we are spiritually dead apart from Christ. That's who we are. Now, when it uses that term trespasses, it means to slip, to fall, to stumble, to deviate, or to go the wrong direction. That's what it's talking about. And when it uses that term sins, when it goes on, uh, when it says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, that originally carried the idea of missing the mark. Like if you were to shoot a bow and arrow at a target and you miss the mark, that would be a sin. That's the illustration that's used. Um, it then came to represent missing or falling short of any goal or standard or purpose. In the spiritual realm that we're talking about, it refers to missing and falling short of God's standard of holiness. That's the standard by which we're to live. And in the New Testament, it's the most common term used about uh, our falling short of God's holiness, that word sin. It's used 173 times in the New Testament. Paul does not use that ter the two ter terms here to point up two different kinds of wrongdoing. It's to create an understanding of an entire sphere of sins and trespasses, things that we do that fall short of the glory of God. That's what he's bringing about. When Paul said in Romans 3.23, all, uh, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, he doesn't give two truths but two views of the same truth. That's what he's doing. He's making sure that everybody understands the breadth and depth of our sin and falling short of God's glory. So, now, here's what happens. We start walking through that, and people th begin to ask some questions, and they begin to think some things. They begin to say, okay, Craig, you're talking about the fact that I am a sinner, absolute, complete, and there's nothing that I can do about it. But, 
my sins and my trespasses are not as bad as some other people. I mean, if you get on Fox News or any type of news media and you listen to it, you're going to hear of people that do heinous, horrible, violent things. And you go, hey, at least I'm not that guy. Or at least I'm not that girl. I haven't done those things. That all men apart from God are sinful does not mean that every person is equally corrupt and wicked. That's not what that means. One illustration that I read, it said that 20 corpses on a battlefield might be in different stages, stages of decay, but they are all uniformly dead. They are all dead. Death manifests itself in many different forms and degrees, but death itself has no degrees. Let me say that one more time because I had to read that a couple of times. Death manifests itself in many forms and degrees. In other words, you're going to see a lot of different types of sins out there that you see talked about on the news or you see in person or you see evidenced. But death itself, true spiritual death, has no degrees because all of us are dead apart from Christ, no matter how we act that out. Sin manifests itself in many different forms and degrees, but the state of sin itself has no degrees. We are all dead, and we are all sinners. Not all men are as evil as they could be, but all fail to measure up to God's perfect holiness. That's the point. You and I fail to meet up to God's holiness. We fail. So here's another question that you may have. Well, at least I have not done most sins. I haven't done most sins. As a state of being, a sphere of existence, sin has more to do with what is not done than what is done. You may go, what, what, do, you, what do you mean by that? God's standard is for men to be perfect just as he is perfect. That's what God's standard is. That's what Scripture says in Matthew 5, 48. We are to be perfect as God is perfect. Okay, so that would be like saying this. I didn't murder my neighbor when they were playing loud music. So I'm not a sinner. Is that a true statement? No. The question is, you didn't murder your neighbor, but did you love your neighbor as yourself? So you didn't go and do this sin but you didn't attain the level of holiness that God calls us to. You are dead in your sins. You are dead. You are spiritually dead. That's the state of all of us in this room, apart from Christ. Jesus did not give a new standard, but he restated a very old one when he says, Be holy for I am holy. That's what we're called to do. God has never had any standard for man but perfect holiness. That has been the standard since day one. And we all fall short of it. In MacArthur's commentary, he stated, it is because of that perfect standard of holiness that men apart from God cannot be anything but sinful. Because he is separated from God, he cannot do anything but fall short of God's standard. 
No matter how much good he does or attempts to do, the standard of never doing or never having done evil at all is unattainable. It's impossible. Man's common state of sin has often been compared to a diverse group of people that are standing at a very wide riverbank. Imagine this. Let's say there's a riverbank, and let's say that this riverbank is a mile wide. And everybody in this room lines up, and we say, okay, here's the deal. We have to jump across this river. Okay? And that's the way we're going to be saved. The orc from Mordor are coming down the mountain at us, and if we do not get across this river, we're dead. Okay? That's the, that's the situation. So we're all standing on this riverbank, and we all start out. Sam goes first. And he says, well, I'm going to back up and I'm going to run. And he runs and he jumps as far as he can. Is he going to clear the river a mile wide? He's not. He's going to fall into that river, right? Oh, and I forgot to tell you, there's a crocodile in the river. Okay, so then Edwin goes, I know I can jump further than Sam. So he backs up even further and he takes off running and he jumps. Is he going to clear the river? Not possible. He's not going to clear that river. He's going to fall into that water. Now, he may go further than Sam, but then Hunter says, I know I can jump further than Edwin. So he backs up even further. Is he going to make it across the river? No. The very best effort that any of us have to cross that river in one jump on our own is going to fall short. No matter, now one of us may get further than another, but none of us is going to cross that river. A few athletes can jump further, several times further, but none of them gets near to the other side. Their degrees of success vary only in relation to each other. We only can compare, hey, I went further than Edwin or Edwin went further than me, but we all fall short. In relation to achieving the goal, they're all equal failures. They all miss the mark. Throughout history, people have had very great, uh, varied greatly in their level of goodness and wickedness. We see that all throughout history. But in relation to achieving God's holiness, they are all equal failures, every single one of us. That is why the good, helpful, kind, considerate, self-giving person needs salvation as much as the serial killer or murderer on death row. They all need salvation, every single one of them. They do not lead equally sinful lives, but they are all equally in the state of deadness before God, every single one. Jesus said in Luke 6, 33, if you, do, if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. Even spiritually dead people do the same thing that you're doing. On another occasion, he said in Luke eleven thirteen, he says, you then being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. Even people that are spiritually dead can do good things, but that does not equate salvation. That does not equate being right with God. As the Lord points out in both of those statements, the person is still a sinner, still evil by nature, and still operating on a, on a motive less than glorifying God. That's where we're at. 
A sinner's good is good. A sinner's doing good is good, but it cannot change his nature or his basic sphere of existence. It can only that that is needed to reconcile him to God. That's where we're at. So, point number one was our state before Christ. Point number two is our walk before Christ. Our walk before Christ. Verse 2 says, In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. In the state or sp- of spiritual death, the only walking or living the person could do is according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the spirit or of the, uh, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. That's the only walking that we can do. So in that we are spiritually dead apart from Christ. If you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, you are spiritually dead. And the only walking you can do is according to the prince of the power of the air. According to uh, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. That's the only thing that you're capable of doing. When it uses that word world, that does not represent the physical earth. It's talking about uh, not just physical creation, uh, but the world order, the world system of values, and the way things of doing things, the world's course. That's what it's talking about. Um, Paul makes it clear that the course of this world follows the leaders and leadership and design of Satan in that he is the prince of the power of the air. Satan is the leader of this world. And in that we are spiritual, if you are spiritually dead, the only thing you can do is follow the world order and Satan is leading the world order. The way things are done, the way things are thought about, the way things are executed. That's all we can do. What we often call the spirit of this times reflects to the, uh, the wider course of this world. A course which means uh, in which men are in basic agreement about right and wrong. Now, when we talk about course of this world, you're gonna st- when I start saying these things, you're going to go, wait a minute. Men don't agree. Don't you watch the news? Haven't you ever heard of Republicans and Democrats? Nobody agrees. There's contention all the time. That's not what's being talked about. A course in which men are in basic agreement about right and wrong, values and worthless, uh, and, and worthless, important and unimportant, everything that, they, that we determine of what the value of something is, what's right and what's wrong, what's important, what's unimportant. Sinful men have many different ideas and standards, but they are in total agreement that the network of things in this world is more important than the divine perspective of God. Whether they are Republican or Democrat or right-wing or left-wing or up or down or they think this is what truth is or this is what truth is, they are all in agreement that that is more important than God's perspective and God's truth. That's what it's being talked about when it talks about the course of this world. In the most basic, in this Uh, most basic world outlook, they are of one mind. And that mind is the mind of Satan. They uh, resolutely work to fulfill the goals and values of their system, though it defies God at every step. That's what they're doing. 
Sinners are persistent in their rejection, and the worse their system becomes, the more they try to justify it and condemn those who speak the word of God against it. That's what they do, and that's what our walk was before Christ. Now, when it uses that term, the prince of the power of the air, Satan is the ruler of this world. Scriptures are very clear about that. Um, and until the Lord casts him out, and talks about that in John 12, 31, he will continue to rule. The power of the, uh, or authority of the air probably refers to Satan's uh, hosts of demons that are along with him on this ride, that are the third of the demon, uh, angels that fell out of heaven. That's probably what that's addressing. Um, but during this present age, and, and actually in Ephesians 6.12, it talks about the fact that uh, Paul was talking and he says the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places, that's what he's talking about. Um, during the present age, Satan and his demons host, host, dominate, pressure, and control every person who is unsaved. That's what Satan's about. Because he is leading a legion of dead people that are incapable of being justified to God on their own. And he is, his desire is to keep you in line with that march. He wants to keep you marching to the control and the themes of this world, of the course of this world. That's what his desire is because he rejects and hates God and his holiness. That's what he hates. So, um, we've got to jump ahead. I get till 750 or 55? 55. Okay, good. Okay. Um, Satan is the personification of spiritual death because he is the personification of rebellion against God. That's what he is. Satan is rebellion against God. He stands against God. And in that we are spiritually dead apart from Christ, we stand with him. We stand with Satan if you are not in Christ. That's what was very clear in Scripture. Um, there are three ways that we walk in this present world. Um, and this is not uh, full encompassing, but three elements that most characterize our present world system that we walk in is humanism, materialism, and, and, and sexual lusts. Those are the things that drive us. We see this in education, goals, aspirations, the way we spend our time, the way we spend our money, everything that we do in the world follows after these things. Humanism places man above all else. Places man above all else. Each man is his own boss, his own standard of good, his own source of authority. In short, humanism is every man is his own God. He has elevated himself to the authority in this world. Above Scripture, everything. And just a side note, that happens very easily in your life whenever Scripture is not the source of truth, of the absolute source of truth and authority in your life. If you remove this as the standard of truth in your life and you say, you know what, I don't believe God's word is true, okay? And you set that to the side, okay, what is truth? 
What is the basis of your truth? It's what you decide it is. It's what you conjure in your own mind. You're a spiritually dead person. You can conjure nothing good in you. What if you say, hey, my standard for good is I'm not going to murder somebody. That's my standard for good. But what if somebody else comes up and says, hey, I'm with you. I've rejected God's word. I don't think it's true. Well, now this person is their own God. And they say, you know what? If you offend me, I think it's justifiable for me to murder you. What? Well, this person has decided what's right in their own eyes, and you've decided what's right in your own eyes. Every man's doing what they want to do. There is no source of absolute truth in your life. And it were standard by which we're to be held. So that's just a side note. Okay, so um, Satan is the prince and the world over the, uh, a ruler over this world system. Um, to walk according to the course of this world, according to the power and na- uh, of, of the prince of the power over there, is to think and to live according to the presuppositions, ideologies, and standards over which Satan of which sin and Satan have control and to be dominated by evil supernatural beings. That's the truth. Satan's supreme purpose is for, men, uh, for men is for them to not only to do evil things, uh, is not to get them only to do evil things, um, but to think and believe evil things, especially about God. That's what Satan's desire is for you, his desire for everybody. Because fallen mankind and Satan's hosts exist in the same spiritual realm, it is quite natural that his spirit is the same spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. That was how we walk before Christ. Before the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that is every person's state. Lastly, point number three, our lives before Christ. Our lives before Christ. Verse 3 says, among them, too, all, uh, among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Paul's primary purpose here is not to show how unsaved people live, uh, now live, though that teaching is applicable for that purpose, but to remind believers how they themselves formerly walked and formerly lived. If you are a saved individual, if you have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, if you have confessed that you have no way of being made right before God and that the very best that you have is nothing but filthy rags and that you stand in judgment and condemned to eternity, separated from God. And your only hope is to cry out for the salvation that God, because he loved you, has given to you in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's provided a way of justification because your sin, my sin, deserves eternal separation and damnation apart from God. That's what we deserve. Because we are sinners. We are dead men and women walking. That's what we are. But Christ. But Christ. 
And that's the point that Paul was making. He's telling them that we have this outpouring of blessing from the Father that he's given to us in Christ. Christ came and lived that life of holiness that we should have lived, that we are incapable of living, even through our very best efforts. And he came and lived it, and then he paid the penalty that we owed because we were dead people walking. That's what he did. Why did he do that? Because, he's, because God so loved the world. Christ, who was God and is God, so loved the world. The Father so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. That's what he did for us. And the only way that we are able to obtain that justification is accepting the sacrifice, that payment of debt that Jesus made for us. That is it. That is the only way. And apart from that, we have no hope. Now, can you go through life and live it and enjoy life? Absolutely. Can you attain a certain amount of joy, of, of, of happiness? There is a certain amount that you will get through the things in this world. And that is exactly what Satan wants you to believe. He wants you to seek after the things that you, you feel make you happy for a temporary period of time. I've shared this analogy before, and I'll share it now, and then I'll close. We have a mindset of just this world. We have a mindset of a temporal 70, 80, 90 years that we live here on this earth. But we need to live with an eternal mindset. The fact that we are, our spirits are going to live for eternity. And I heard this analogy, and I loved it. Imagine if I was holding a rope, and that rope runs out the door and around, through all the way to Dallas and runs all the way to the East Coast and runs all the way around the world and back around the world and back in that door right there. And then that rope goes back out, and it goes around the earth 20 times. And I'm holding the end of that rope, and that rope is that long, goes around the earth 10, 20 times. And I took a piece of tape, electrical tape, about three quarters of an inches wide and I wrapped it around the very end of that rope that piece of electrical tape represents the 70 80 90 years that we have on this earth the rest of that rope represents just the beginning of eternity why do we live with our focus on that piece of tape why do we live and put all our energies and thought and resources and minds into that 70, 80, 90 years instead of living for eternity? And the way we live for eternity is in Christ. That is the only way, and that is our only hope. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you that your word is so clear. And Father, we confess to you that so many times we fail in our desire to be holy, to be righteous, because, Father, we do things in our own flesh, in our own desires. But, Father, we pray that you would humble us, that you'd bring those that do not know you to a saving knowledge of yourself through a confession that Jesus is Lord and that their only hope is in him. Father, I pray that you would just allow us to see through the lies that Satan tries to tell us that uh, that the things in this earth 
or what we desire and the, what we need when truly, Father, the, all that we need is you. And that is where our hope lies. That is where our hearts need to lie. But, Father, we are incapable of seeking you on our own. I pray, Father, that you would, through the indwelling of your Holy Spirit, through the work of your Holy Spirit, that you would draw those that do not know you to yourself. I pray, Father, that you'd bring a confession of sin, that you'd be a, bring a brokenness of trying to live this life in their own strength, in their own power. Father, we thank you that your word is true and accurate, and it cuts to our very hearts. And Father, you allow it to do that because you love us. You desire to have a relationship with us. You desire to call us sons and daughters and for us to call you Father. Father, I pray that you'd be with us this evening, that you'd work in our hearts and continue to work in our hearts to sanctify, to purify, and bring justification. We ask and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.